Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So, hey, Eric, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, I'm happy to be with you, Tara. Uh, I'm a big fan of your work, and this is very exciting. Well, I'm glad you're here, and you're um, you're calling in from New Hampshire, right? It is literally snowing as we speak. It is, yeah. So we we had the snow before you did, actually. Um, so yeah, um, this is the stuff that was in Texas, right? We have two wood stoves here that we're using all the time. So, but we've been it's um, it's hard to. Hard to think of it as the same because the way things play out is so different, and I think it's always hard in the South when this kind of weather comes in. Um, but it's this is a national story. It's been the top story for several days. This whole big uh, uh, weather front. Yeah, yeah, no, seriously. Which is, it's an interesting lead into our topic. Um, the reason that we're going to chat is scenario planning, right? So it's an interesting thing to keep in mind as we talk about scenario planning, right, Eric? Well, especially because you have the events and then you have the response to the events. And as time plays out, the story, you know, can be about one or the other. Right, right. So why don't we start by backing up and just having you introduce yourself and the um, work you do with scenario planning. Sure. My name is Eric DeLuca. My business is called Leverage Point Consulting. I do a lot of my work in uh, food systems and working lands, economic development in Vermont. Um, I'm the private sector lead or vice chair of a program called the Working Lands Enterprise Initiative and the Working Lands Enterprise Board. Um, so I've been doing that for the last nine years. I'm actually terming out this fiscal year, um, which is exciting. I get to do some succession planning with the incoming vice chair which is an example of the kind of business assistance that not just in this case, but across the board, we see is really important and relevant for small businesses of all kinds, but particularly those that are in the regenerative food space and, and uh, you know, we're in the working lands in, in general. And so a lot of my focus, and this is really how I came to get to know the, the Food Finance Institute, is around uh, what are the ways you can help small businesses succeed, particularly in the food and farm space, and that can include both dollars um, and also business assistance. And often, if you ask the folks with the dollars, um, they will say that the business assistance makes the biggest difference, and certainly it often unlocks the dollars. Um, and so in my work, I work on both sides of that equation. Um, I led Slow Money Vermont, which is part of the national network of various slow money groups uh, around the country for a couple of years. I led for a few years the um, part of the Vermont Food System Farm to Plate Network that focuses on financing, and financing is seen as a cross-cutting element of the network because it really affects every node that represents a leverage point in, in bringing the food system forward. And Vermont just finished the first 10 years of its uh, strategic plan for its food system development and had a goal of increasing local consumption of local food um, to 10% from 5%. And they came in with their numbers around 13%. And they just published in the last week or so their next 10 years uh, new plan. And I think they pushed the goal up to 25% in the next 10 years. So that's, that's an ambitious stretch goal. But you can see that um, looking at the role of finance within a story like that is really important. And I think, Terry, you know that as well as anybody. Yeah, yeah, no. And I mean, just hearing you talk about Vermont, I want to cry because I tramp around the country and I'm here in Wisconsin. And, you know, nobody nobody does a 10-year plan for anything. And we're nowhere near 10% local food and like 25%. I, you know, nobody would even think about that. So, I'm always so excited when I hear what's going on in Vermont or on food systems anyway. It is exciting. And that's really how I got involved in leadership in that particular um, geographic area. I was leading a network of the consumer-owned retail uh, food co-ops uh, in New England that had storefronts in four states. And as we were doing a strategic analysis of those states in our network, we noticed uh, a 
unusual level of coherence in the Vermont system. And that led <laughs> us to explore that more fully. And then they realized as they were drawing these maps of the different components of a food value chain, that that retail piece was a key element in the food co-ops were often a first market for many of the value-added producers and farmers in the area. And so I got drawn into the leadership community uh, in Vermont, and that gave me an opportunity across two uh, funding boards to help make decisions about how to allocate both federal and state dollars at various points that have come into the state to help the system. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's the other piece that's missing in most pla most places I go around the country. It's yeah, it's like pulling teeth to get any kind of any, any kind of funding. So, um, so yeah, and I also didn't actually put it together that you were the president of Slow Money because I did that too for a little while here in Wisconsin. So we have that in common too, Eric. Yes, we, I actually remember speaking at a little table at one of the Food Hub conferences or something yeah, like that with you and a few others that were leading different regional groups. And it's uh, true. always yeah. interesting to compare notes. And I, I was just listening to the Honest Bison um, podcast that you folks did at Edible Alpha and that those themes around patient capital and working capital and how to bridge the needs of the businesses that folks want to support with the understanding and assumptions of the capital providers is it's as live an issue today as it was at that time. Totally has not changed. Um, yeah. So, so you do when you, uh, so we started working on scenario planning together and that happened because, um, it, COVID, when COVID hit in particular, it was so <clears throat> difficult for anybody to plan, right? I, we work on, on helping people raise money and they have to put together a three-year forecast, right? Which means you got to have a plan for three years. And people were looking at me like, what? I'm going to, you're asking me to have a plan for three years in this, you know, situation. Um, I said, yeah, you know, you still need that to raise money. And I said, you know, we, uh, we need to do scenario planning because that's a methodology that has been designed to deal with uncertainty in planning. So why don't you, because you're the expert in this, why don't you talk about scenario planning? Help us understand what it is. Sure. And I do think it's worth taking just a second to uh, notice how we got to that mutual recognition that scenario planning would be helpful in the uncertainty that the pandemic brought about, both yeah. in terms of health and economics. Um, you know, this huddle that the Food Finance Institute was a great resource, um, and it was an example of some of the networks that I'm involved with that as this started to hit, capital providers, business assistant providers to food businesses um, <clears throat> said, hey, we better start talking. You know, we've got loans out that are, are we going to change the terms of these loans? Like what's going to happen? There were a lot of questions that came up for the people that help businesses as people were watching the businesses struggle. And even with our funding program in Vermont, we our fiscal year ends at the end of June and we looked at the dollars we had remaining just erasing all the line items and re reallocated basically all of our remaining dollars to do some rapid deployment of funds to working lands businesses uh, in a way that they could get our money before the CARES Act um, COVID relief fund dollars hit the ground. And so although our the amount that we had to work with was in the hundreds of thousands rather than the millions, um, it was money that we could get into the hands of businesses. And with that program in Vermont, the Working Lands Enterprise Initiative, we can actually put cash grant dollars in the hands of a business, which is relatively rare. And so we felt like that was an important thing to do. And I heard the same kind of conversation among the business assistance providers in the Food Finance Institute huddle, and also in the group of capital providers in the New England area that um, John Hamilton of the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund has been organizing and convening for the last several years, and they started to meet more rapidly as well. And so, as you say, as this uncertainty started to flash red, I was like scenario planning. And I, you know, I had been trained in scenario planning in 1995 from Mark Kleiner, who um, <clears throat> knew all the the people at Shell that had really codified the, the, the method, and he wrote a great article in uh, Strategy Plus Business Magazine in spring 2003 about Pierre Wack, kind of the main guru from Shell of the scenario planning 
method called the man who saw the future. So I had that background and then I had done it with clients of different kinds, um, trade associations, networks, um, and, and individual, um, food, food and farm businesses. And so, and, um, <clears throat> but this, this seemed like it was particularly relevant. And so I started mentioning it in those different conversations and, um, it, was notable in the Food Finance Institute huddle conversation that there was this rec mutual recognition that this was important and relevant. And then we started talking about, let's look at what McKinsey is doing. Let's look at what the, um, the CPG businesses are doing, that, that sort of the heavy hitters um, in various markets were doing this and asking these questions. And we started to feel like um, the small businesses that we work with need this as much or more and that why would, why don't they deserve it? And we wanted to try to think about how could we get this resource into, in, into the hands of these businesses. It's a powerful tool. And um, it was, it was one of those, it, it kind of felt like a do or die moment. Like we really needed to act and act efficiently in order to, uh, to create these, um, these tools for these businesses. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we launched into um, a process of developing it, and um, but it would be really great. Like, like, um, why don't you talk about like how it, how scenario planning came about, right? Like, because there's yeah, planning yeah, in, in an uncertain world, right? <clears throat> well, it's an interesting story. I mean, it, it really kind of goes back to to World War II and the. Um, the advent of, of nuclear weapons and then the, the world in which nuclear weapons existed and how do you navigate within it. Um, Herman Kahn uh, was with the RAND Corporation and, and helped to try to get people to think about what was framed as the unthinkable. Nobody really wanted to think about a nuclear war and then. And so to help people say it could go this way and it could go this way and this could happen and that could happen, um, help to unlock people to be able to think about strategies and do planning and work backwards towards what they might do now. Um, and then that, in the context of that, um, as it started to be shared more publicly through Stanford Research Institute in the 1960s, leaders from Shell, like Ted Newland, got uh, exposed to it, uh, and, and Pierre Wack, who ended up really taking the ball and and making it something that a multinational corporation could do in a systematic way, really with the intent of changing um, and, and kicking the tires on the mindset of the senior leaders um, and to get people to question their assumptions. And the thing that made it famous in terms of being a business tool was that at the time, if you think of the Seven Sisters, the various oil companies in that, in that multinational sphere, Shell was towards the bottom of the heap in terms of economic power. And um, this was before the oil embargo and the oil crisis of the early 70s. And as Shell did its scenarios and said, well, what do we think is going to happen? What has to happen? They started to realize that something like what did happen in 1973 was inevitable. And they started making adjustments in their strategy and their approaches w with that assumption and then when the crisis did hit, they were better prepared and it kind of propelled them to uh, in the sort of the top tier of, of their market. Um, and a, a similar thing happened again later on with them. So they had a couple of experiences about this. And Pierre Wack wrote two articles in Harvard Business Review in 1985 um, that helped to tell the story of these. So you can you can read those stories in, in his words. But that dramatic impact of using the method, put it on the radar of um, the business and, and management consulting community. And um, then in the, the 90s, um, Peter Schwartz from Global Business Network, um, who had been involved in Shell, and a lot of the people had, had, that had done leadership within Shell's scenario team went on to do this work more broadly elsewhere, Joseph Jaworski from the organizational learning world, et cetera. But Peter Schwartz wrote a book called The Art of the Long View, and that was ended up being the textbook when I learned scenario planning from Art Kleiner at NYU's Interactive Telecommunications Program in 1995. And Peter really walked through the method um, step by step and then gave illustrative examples and gave examples of what various uh, scenario stories, various futures could look like. And the key piece of this is it, one way to answer it is to say, what is it not? 
Um, there is an impulse to think that if you're going to tell stories of the future, that you're predicting the future. So it's kind of important for folks to understand that this is not and it's not intended to be a crystal ball. And I think one of the other most salient features of it is these have to be things that could happen. Um, plausible is kind of the term of art in, in the field. And so you want, well, you want futures that could happen, um, but you're not predicting the future. And then once you get into it and you're writing different futures, it's not just one future and it's not the official future that the CEO or the board wants you to think is going to happen. You want stories that, that push the envelope uh, in, in one direction or another. Um, and as we said, I, these various indicators of the relevance of scenario planning started to come up as the pandemic unfolded. And one of the ones that made an impression on me was Harvard Business Review put um, scenario planning and strategic foresight on the cover of its July-August 2020 issue. The cover was Emerging from the Crisis, How to Lead Through Uncertainty and Strengthen Your Organization for the Long Haul. Um, learning from the future was the article, and the, the the author was Peter Skoblik. And so I saw that, and I was like, wow, you know, people who are looking at this situation are really seeing that this particular tool, this particular mindset as a way of addressing uncertainty is as important as anything else right now. And it was funny because as we were moving towards delivering our program, we piloted it in December online, Um Peter Schwartz resurfaced in a new hat. Now he was with um, Salesforce as their uh, chief future officer. And and Salesforce in in the early spring partnered with Deloitte and did some longer term scenarios of what the next normal might look like. But then, and this, this came up in the Oxford scenarios program as well, that folks who do scenarios for a living started to realize that change had changed, as the Oxford folks said in their white paper, that it made sense to look at a much more um, rapid and near-term time frame than you would usually use for scenario planning because things were just so crazy and things were just so unknown. Um, and so what Salesforce did by the summer was to do some short-term scenarios, thinking about how this might play out in relation to the pandemic health-wise and in relation to the economy. And then by December, they had iterated those again with new information about the status of the vaccines and the new variants. And so it was really interesting to see the folks who had kind of written the book on scenario planning out there in the world, making sense of what we were seeing with our own eyes. Right, right. And I, I think what was well, there are so many things about this that I really like, but one of the things that I like and we experience because we've now delivered, we've done our pilot of this. And one of the things that I, I loved about this was this um, creating these, these potential scenarios for the future, your, your um, stories for the future. And I like calling them stories, right? Because they're because we're not predicting, we're, we're saying this might be, it might be this story, it could be that story, um, was it, it, it like frees people in a way to, to imagine both what could happen, but also where they want to be. Like they, it frees them to see themselves in the future and their business in the future in a way that typical planning doesn't. Like you're so rooted in typical planning you know, processes, you're so rooted in where you are, it's really hard to see anything different than that. Yeah, yeah. Forecasting, you know, people are in, in many methods that are data driven, you're, it, it pushes you back towards the past. And that's, that's what actually was going on in the oil industry at the time that Shell did their scenarios, because um, coming out of the 50s into the 60s, that sector had really only seen um, consistent growth. And so in all of the boardrooms across the Seven Sisters, the assumption was that that trend line was would continue. And when um, Shell took this future-oriented view, they realized that actually was unlikely and that these other things had to happen, and that gave them the competitive advantage as events unfolded. Right, right. It, it yeah. So so ironically it's like this this by detaching yourself from where you are and looking allowing yourself to look further in the future you become more resilient in the present. It's it's an it's an interesting thing. So I, you, you know we started out talking about the weather here and um you know what has been going on in in Texas and the southern parts of the country and you know here we are with climate change. Um, even if we didn't have a pandemic, like the climate change has just introduced this incredible, is for those of us in food and farming in particular, incredible variability. 
Yeah, Bill Gates, I think, just wrote a book about it. And, um, you know, he's Mr. Pandemic. He, there's a great TED Talk about him talking about this type of pandemic risk a few years ago. And yet, you know, what he says when he talks about it now is, you know, as bad as the pandemic is, in many ways, it, it's something, this particular pandemic, that, is, that it, it's resolvable in a way that that is, that makes, it, it makes it clear that climate change is, is another level, level of a wicked problem. Mm-hmm. Right. It's going to get, it'll be worse, right? Orders of magnitude worse. And then, ironically, then we have what is going on in Texas. My, my son lives in Austin, so, I, and he had a baby this year. So grandma has been like getting text messages from, <laughs> from places where there's like no heat, no water. Like this is the capital of Texas. We have a client we're working with down there who is an incubator farm, and I had a call with her yesterday, too, and she said, you know, like, what more can happen? Because we're having, um, we had the pandemic, then we, you know, and all the ad implications for that for her farm. They also do food relief work. Um, so th- that, you know, completely changed their business model. Um, then they had, this is actually not the first bad weather they've had in Texas. They had another event, not nothing like this, and they didn't lose power, but it's bad enough a month ago. If you're running a farm, it's bad enough to get snow. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things is going back to the method that that is part of how you build a scenario story is something they call predetermined elements, things that you know will happen. It helps you to ground your stories if you're writing four different stories of the future and you know certain things need to happen, a given thing may be more or less important in one story, but if you looked at that future, this thing would be part of it. And, you know, the tendency when you think about something like that is to think about an outcome or an event that's going to happen down the line. But what's most interesting about them is, is the upstream nature of it. And often what you're looking for is something that's already happened but we haven't seen its impact yet. And, um, you know, the social justice thing is, I think, a, a great example of that. The, that. That's why people talk about systemic racism. And obviously, I'm not the most qualified person to talk about this, but just in, generally speaking, um, the, the structural components that are leading to the specific events that we see are so rooted and, and so longstanding that, that each of these things are... are understandable when you see them happen as horrible as they are. And, and, and so seeing the change that's coming out of that, I think is really heartening. And if you look at, there was a woman who I'm forgetting her name right now, but wrote a book called pandemic that was written before the pandemic and then got a lot of interviews after it hit. Oh, um, I remember and, that. Yeah. Yeah. And her new book is about migrations and the theme of migration. Um, and um you know, when you look, when you go upstream and say, what happened, what happened, what happened, one of the main um, things that people point to is the encroachment on wild habitats. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that a lot of these viruses would be kind of out there doing their thing. But because we've, we've encroached on the on the place where this or that animal lives, and that uh, the, the economic practices that would support that happening, are going or maybe going unchecked, then you see something that happens that if you were looking at that upstream issue, it would be predictable that a particular virus would jump from a bat to a this to this to a, to a human. And so um, I think it's it's really helpful. This is one of the elements of the discipline that can help people sharpen their thinking um, is to think about something that you think might be uncertain and then kick the tires on that, test the assumptions on that. And sometimes if you look backwards and look upstream with it, there are certain things that really couldn't come out another way. Right. So talking about, um, you know, Austin losing power and losing water and all of that, if you did something like that, exercise, you would see, as my son has said, this is not the first time we've lost power. And it's not the first time we've lost, we've had a boiling water. Um, I, in fact, I was there one, one time I was there in the summer, they had a, they had to boil their water too, right? So, but it didn't all happen all at once. And it didn't happen in a nice storm. You know what I mean? Like they've, they've had signs if you look if you look if you're looking the signs were there right yeah 
Yeah. And now the challenge is, you know, to look into the future. And now we're now we're small business leaders or small we owners of small businesses or we run farms and you know we we don't we got to you know look into the future and say well what does that mean for us right now and it, it isn't it it's feeling like it's kind of the scariness is there too right about climate change that you know it was scary to think about what could happen if, with nuclear war it's also scary to think about climate change and so we kind of don't do it yeah um you may recall when we were doing the part of the um scenario planning program and strategic foresight program where folks were creating this scenario stories the futures that they were going to share with with the others in the cohort I use an example to illustrate what a timeline could look like, and the the um, the example that I used was a was a climate um, a climate story, and I named the future climate victory for the seventh generation, mm-hmm. and so it was on a timeline looking out towards 2060, and the idea was that um, <clears throat> that the the Earth was able to avert irreversible inhabitability. Um, that was the outcome, and you know various things were on the timeline. This was you know, written last year, and and one of the first items on the uh, timeline was U.S. rejoins Paris Accord. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've made an effort to do that, but but when you get out to 2035, um, what the event on the timeline is high death, property, and market toll from cascading ecological disasters that awaken political will for public sector response at scale by the U.S. and other lagging nations. And so, you know when you play these things out, even though this is a story that would have a positive outcome, and if you were doing a range of, of um, scenarios about climate change, you'd probably need an Armageddon one or something like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this happened to be a happy ending story, and yet within it, pretty much in the middle of the story, there was a horrible, horrible thing that was so bad that it actually got um, uh, institutional structures that had been hesitant to really commit at scale to do so. Um, and I think that's a, an important point for folks that are trying to look at how to create stories of the future, because we talk about uh, the positive stories need to have some bad news in it and vice versa. And so we're not one of the challenges um, <clears throat> if people are going to do an exercise like this is there could be a tendency to be like put on the rose colored glasses and say, OK, well, let's just just tell the story we want to hear. Um, and, you know, and I mentioned earlier, I think the idea that you could just try to tell the story that the CEO wants to hear, the official story, and that's going to really not get you where you need to be in terms of testing your assumptions and trying to understand what you might not be thinking about that's important. So, um, anyway, that's just one example with, with the climate change piece. And I could talk about some of the other things that I happened to put on that timeline. I was just doing it by way of example, but, um, since we're talking about it, I thought it's Yeah. Yeah, no. And I think what's also interesting about that is you put that, you know, the horrible event happened in, in, you know, 2035. And it turns out that a pretty darn horrible event, if, especially if you live in Texas, happened this year. <laughs> like, like the, um, the pace at which things are evolving is pretty unprecedented, I think. Yeah, yeah. And sadly, also, you know, the definition uh, of horrible becomes a, a point of discussion. Like I, when I wrote this, the various wildfires in California, uh, et cetera, were already part of the picture. Right. And um, and it, with these <clears throat> large-scale political a- actions with appropriations, it can actually be shocking how bad things need to get in order for um, responses to take place at scale. And and we'll see. You know, I mean, we're, we're, there are already changes uh, underway in the U.S. right now in terms of climate response and w- – w- you know, we'll see. But I, I think that part of the challenge is in this particular topic is that each of these things that seems really, really bad. Um, I mean, look at the death count with COVID. You'd right. think that, you know, uh, 100,000 or 200,000 or 300, like any of these things could have been like unthinkable and, and we just got to stop everything and whatever. But then people start weighing this versus that and they say, well, you know, yes, but I'm not sure. You know what I mean? And so, um, it can be shocking how bad things need to be in order for large scale um, political will and, and um, you know, mega appropriation level investment to really solve a problem, uh, you know, to, to, to mobilize. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to me, that's an even more it's an even more compelling argument for why business leaders and farm leaders um, want to do scenario planning because it, it's you know to expect these these this um, uncertainty to be addressed by bigger institutions at least right now is probably not the right expectation so you know like that that leader who I mentioned talking about um, earlier that you know she's saying how much more can we take and I'm like yeah I think it's gonna be this way like somehow as leaders we have to have tools for dealing with an environment that has this much variability to it yeah and it, it, it reminds me of, of that honest bison podcast when when Sean talks about a positive impact at the scale of my local community and my local farm and this small impact and then this global positive around carbon sequestration or this or that and being able to to do it at that range of, of scales with your actions and it, it is a good way to test you know um, whatever strategic um, decisions that are made and it's also a good way to test branding decisions and, and um, I think that one of the things we found and that we've discussed um, most coming out of this pilot session is how impressed we were with the participating businesses' capacity to really move from the tactical thinking that they may have been using on a day-to-day basis, especially when they're putting out so many fires every day, to thinking strategically and then how that strategic thinking impacted the way they described their, their brand and their business and their business model. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I, I mean, I... I've done a, a lot of strategic planning facilitation and stuff over the years, and I don't think I've ever seen a group of people move as far as that group did. There's, there's something really powerful about the scenario planning process, I think, that helps, again, I, it helps disconnect from the kind of historic, you know, numbers way of looking at planning and get you into into a future that is can be much more strategic. Yeah, yeah it, it was interesting to me. You know, one of the things that we talk about a lot, once you have your stories of the future and you're really getting into that mode of strategic foresight where you're cycling back between what am I looking at today? Who just called me on the phone? What's in the headlines? And then what do I think the future could be? And then how do you, how do you connect the dots with that? And one of the ways to do that is to look for indicators that things are going one way or another. Um, and, you know, in this overwhelming information landscape, one of the ways to be able to notice those indicators is through filters, whether it's a trusted magazine or podcast or show or a friend or colleague or somebody in your own organization, whatever. And um, I, uh, one of the podcasts that I listen to is Make Me Smart that's put out by marketplace and they did a newsletter and one of the things that they do as as a as a thing is is the numbers and they'll pick just a few different numbers and marketplace does this sometimes on its regular show on npr and it's just a number and then and then what is it what does it mean and and um and so the one that they put in in today's was about the restaurant industry yeah. And um, they were talking about uh, the National Restaurant Association associating that 2.5, uh, the, the association estimating that 2.5 million jobs were lost in 2020 due to the pandemic, and that more than 100,000 eateries in the U.S. had closed permanently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's shocking in and of itself, 2.5 million jobs, 100,000 businesses, so then in our cohort, um, in December, we had a, a restaurant owner and um, super sharp, super strategic, looking with an unjaundiced eye about the various factors that would impact um, his brand and his business and his portfolio of, of business activities and business model. And, um, and it was just great to see somebody who was in the crosshairs in terms of the economic um, risks of the pandemic looking so unflinchingly at the present and the future and, and thinking it through. And, you know, you think about anybody that's in any kind of emergency or leadership position, that ability to um, access some level of calmness and clarity of thinking in the midst of whatever is coming down the pike is, is so uh, central to, to uh, survival and then thriving. Right. And leadership, right? Because people are looking to the, you know, the, we look to our leaders to, um, to provide the clarity that we don't have when we look elsewhere, right? Um, 
And that, that's what's so grinding for leaders about an environment like this. If you don't have a tool like this, that helps you be more adaptive. Yeah. 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 And we found it was interesting when we were talking about this program and the value of the program and having folks step outside of their day to day for three days to look at these stories of the future and then look at the implications for their strategy and walk out the door with strategies in their pocket that are robust and then also with a way of thinking that can help them make sense of whatever happens and the, and the changes that are coming. Um, we realize that for many entrepreneurs right now, having the ability to calmly think and, and consider what to do and make decisions is a luxury. And that one of the things that we were providing by doing this and having them in this group with the, the, the other businesses that were doing it in parallel with them and then sharing their, their stories together was to create an environment um, where uh, they could take a little bit of a step back, but in a way they're stepping back to engage even more fully. They're really looking very closely at their business. And we always say, well, my colleague, Jenna St. Ange from the Flexible Capital Fund in Vermont is, says all the time, you know, it's so difficult for, um, for entrepreneurs to work on their business. They're so busy working in their business. It's very hard to get that, um, to look at your business model, to think about your strategies, to think about the, you know, even, even decisions that need to be made in the next six months to have the space to really think it through. And if I did this, what about that? And, and to really see, oh, this, maybe this is the problem, or maybe this is the next phone call I need to make. It's hard to get that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And it's, a, you know, and it's sort of like, I, I, we do boot these boot camps too, and boot camps is four days. They're not conti- they're not contiguous days, but it's two days and then two days, and that's a lot. I mean, a lot of business owners look at that and go, "Huh, I don't know if I can do that." And then my point about that is like, you can't afford not to do it because you you're you have to step away in order to to have a broader view of your business. You have to. Otherwise, this is just like running around like a gerbil in a wheel, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the projects that I did um, just, just released at the end of last year um, through the Vermont Farm to Plate Network, um, worked with John Hamilton of New Hampshire Community Loan Fund and, and a few um, food system entrepreneurs in Vermont to help people understand the value and how and why of of advisory boards and an entrepreneur mm, working with yeah. an advisory board to give them support for the decisions that they make. And one of the great metaphors that John used in his speech talking about, you know, you know, the first thing people will say is I don't have time, yeah. you know, and his response is I get it. But, you know, one of the things that, that, uh, that an advisory board can do is help you make sure that when you're putting a ladder up and starting to spend time climbing the ladder, that you didn't put the ladder on the wrong wall. Right. Right, right. Yep. So you've been doing work on advisory boards and you've been working on uh, with some funds. How is their work changing because of what's going on right now? Well, I think, you know, many folks are looking at equity and inclusion. And obviously, many folks have been looking at it for a while and many folks have been looking at it for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think that there is a particular urgency um, since George Floyd uh, and the events of last year for people to be like, what can I do and who can I partner with? And I think what I'm seeing is, especially because, and this is true in New England um, and Wisconsin, you know, some places more so than others, and um, that there are fewer people of color in a lot of the networks that are doing these various things. And so um, this idea of who can you partner with and who, what, what are networks uh, among within the Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities that can then help to access and, and really have a trusting relationship with the, um, the BIPOC farmer or entrepreneur um, and, and encourage folks to, to engage in some of these opportunities because part of the, part of the challenge is the silos of, of you know, who was aware of a particular funding opportunity, who is, um, <clears throat> has a sense of um, how to go through the steps to uh, avail oneself of mm-hmm. this particular business assistance or feeling like this is for me. You know, this right. is something that came up a lot when, when I was working in, in the food co-op world. Um, and you'd have different uh, communities like a, a Hispanic community that would be within a certain geographic region of the, of a particular food co-op. And, the, and then, and then if you ask people in the community and say, well, that store is not for me. And right. so is that the, the food that you have in it or is it that the seeing people like you or whatever? And obviously 
these are tough, tough problems, and I don't want to pretend to have easy answers. Um, and I think it's, it's a conversation, and I think there are many folks who are um, showing great leadership now in how to make sense of this. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think being step-by-step with it is important. But, the, but what I'm seeing now when you're making decisions about like putting out a request for proposals or a request for applications for funding is how do you put that in the mix? And how do you, how do you, uh, what comes forward that seems like it makes a difference? And what I've seen so far is that when you've got um, a network that is engaged with a community of color, for example, um, and that they can then have a trusting relationship with particular entrepreneurs and particular businesses so that people see an opportunity as relevant for them and have confidence that it's something that they would be, um, you know, welcomed within, um, that can help bridge some of those gaps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in when scenario planning, we had this moment where you have remarkable people come and listen to people present their scenarios. And we had Cheryl um, um, from the SPDC network, um, and and she she's black. She's in Milwaukee, and she has done so much to make it. I think the SPDC here was perceived as not something for the black community in Milwaukee, and she has like. I don't, I'm not going to say completely transformed that, but she's made a a lot of progress and. And watching that makes me realize just how important even and impactful even one person can be in this particular topic, right? Yeah, Cheryl Mitchell is great. And she, you know, she came in, especially as things started to heat up in the, in the summer um, with, the, with these topics, she came in to the, um, to the huddle and, and said some super helpful things. But I, 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 it's interesting to see, you know, she's got vast experience. I think she has experience in the VC world. She's yeah. got a foot in, 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 a, in a lot of universes. And um, it's always great when you hear her speak because she's, she says subtle things and she says things that are, are not obvious. You would not the not the first thing that mm-hmm. that you would expect her that everybody would say, and um, she was great. You know, I loved having her and um, Jeff, the, the lawyer that works yep. in the university with a lot of um, the uh, small businesses in the food and farm space um, up there. That you know, she after all the businesses in the cohort presented their stories of the future, she talked about risk, and she said, "Look, you really need to um, look at." monetary risk you need to look at political risk you need to look at market risk mm-hmm. and and you you know if there's a trade association that that relates to what your business is doing you know get, get involved and if they ask for your opinion on something give them your opinion because you can really have an impact and so i think that <clears throat> you know we need to and benefit from having folks coming into our conversations that have a range of different um points of contact w- with the world and, and really giving folks space to say what they have to say. Mm-hmm. And um, I hope that those businesses um, that were in the cohort in the pilot in December took to heart what, what both Cheryl and Jeff had to say, because I was, you know, I made it, I w- was so impressed with this. That I made a little PDF and gave it to folks the next day when they were doing their strategies, because I was like, you can really use some of these ideas as a litmus test to see if you're, um, you know, thinking through your potential strategies uh, sufficiently. Yeah, yeah, no, it was really great. It was really great to have them come in. And it's a, I think it's a great dimension to the program that you bring people in to help challenge it, because that's the other thing that we have as business owners, right? That we, we're kind of like good at, especially entrepreneurs, right? We're, we're, we're salespeople, man. Um, and we sell whatever crazy idea we have um, to ourselves first, right? <laughs> um, and it's, we're kind of in our own little self-defined bubble and having a process that gets you interacting with other people like that and getting, you know, kind of gently challenged by other people is also really helpful, I think. Yeah, no, completely. And that's, and that's by design with the scenario planning method, because you really need a diversity of views to, um, to help people to, to think outside the box, for, for lack of a, a better word, because you do want to press the edges of, um, of, of plausibility to really test your assumptions. Mm-hmm. And how much do you think um, people in your work 
are really getting their heads around the, you know, kind of the looming impact of climate change on agriculture in the Northeast? Well, it's been interesting for me to see a multi-stakeholder effort to look at and think through payment for ecosystem services. Um, when you have legislators and foundation folks and extension folks and businesses on the ground talking together, farmers about um, what the needs are, what the opportunities are, what some of the benchmarks and examples from elsewhere in the world and in the, in the country might be, I think that's a heartening conversation. And one of my views from looking at this over the last couple of years, and I'm not in the center of all of these conversations, but I'm, I'm watching it as it, as it progresses in Vermont, is that <clears throat> particularly foundations have an opportunity to help bridge uh, one conversation with another. Because one of the things that we saw with the history of organic was that there were um, pockets of regional standards that evolved. Uh, and at a certain point, the impetus, and I know folks have concerns about uh, the, the, uh, the national organic standard, and, uh, and nothing's perfect, but um, that as things move forward, this this challenge of, well, it's this way in this place and it's another way in another place mm -hmm. ended up being um, the type of, of barrier that, that um, created an impetus to have a, a, a single way to understand what we're talking about when we say something and then, and then putting it in, into the market. Mm -hmm. um, and especially businesses that are serving a range of different geographic markets or market channels. And so I think that... Um, I'm not suggesting that we need a monolithic solution to payment for ecosystem services, but I think some sensitivity to how different models are uh, um, developing and then thinking through how a business is going to operate and how um, those resources might be um, relevant for the different businesses so that you don't build into the design any uh, barriers or points, points of inaccessibility that were unintended. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I would... You know, we don't, again, I'm sort of, I'm, I was always so, um, looking at Vermont, I'm always so impressed with kind of the, and, and New England too, like the, the level of conversation that happens around things like this is really different than here. Here, everybody's like, it's kind of a free-for-all out here, right? There's no, I don't think people are really talking to each other, and it's one private entity that's trying to put together a carbon credit system and then another one is doing another one and the Dane County where I am has a big phosphorus credit program. Don't talk to any other counties about it, right? Um, never mind anybody out of state about it. So it's such a, I mean, it's a good that this stuff is emerging because at least out here, if they were waiting to have some consistency to it, nothing would ever happen. But it's frustrating because it's such a patchwork. Yeah, and I think that people have to do what they can, especially before, again, there's this mass political will or social will or whatever because everybody sees, oh, my God. Um, and I think, you know, we talked earlier a little about, about slow money and how there are different slow money networks in various parts of the country, and I think slow money Maine is uh, an interesting story in this regard. So, slow Money Maine as a network has moved as much or more money, I think, as any other slow money group at par parts in the country. What I lad numbers I heard, and it's probably higher now, $10, 11000000 million yeah, even through yeah, no, it's that system. Uh, and folks like Bonnie Rukin have, you know, mm -hmm. beat the bushes and really ran around to make that happen. But also at the time, there wasn't a lot of um, public sector support for these type of initiatives um, in the state. Now that has shifted with uh, Amanda Beal coming in as commissioner and, and there are various other things happening and there's been a kind of equalization across public and private um, in trying to be strategic and out front around addressing these issues. But one way to think about the impact and effectiveness of Slow Money Maine was that they, they were addressing a genuine vacuum. Mm -hmm. And so they were, and there were strong, strong networks like the, the, uh, um, Mavka, the, the organic farming and, and the gardening group there. Um, and there were emerging initiatives like creating a credit union that would help to finance uh, these types of food and farm businesses. But there was also a gap, uh, of, of, you know, if you look at a state that's near Vermont and you say, oh, there's all this public sector support in Vermont for a while, there really wasn't that, um, in, in Maine. And, and, and then you get a real success story on the other side of the, uh, equilibrium. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's the hopeful side of all this, I guess. Right. Um, 
Yeah, so have we missed anything, um, Eric, about, about scenario planning and, um, and just kind of that whole strategic thinking approach? Well, I think it's important to, to bear in mind uh, the folks who do help businesses in different ways because I think that this tool is as important and relevant for them as it is for the businesses that they help. Yeah, um, so whether it's a fund that has a portfolio of companies that they're investing in and they're, you know, a lot of, the, again, as I mentioned, that many of the funders that I work with and investors recognize that business assistance can be as important or more important than the dollars. And so if you have an impact investor that's putting money into one or a portfolio of businesses and they want those businesses to succeed and they feel like I want to do everything I can to give this business the tools to succeed, recognizing that this type of strategic foresight and using scenario planning to get there um, is a real potential asset in that regard. And I think that's true for networks of folks that are um, providing business assistance. Um, one of the, the projects that I helped to develop a, a couple of years ago was the Agricultural Viability Alliance in uh, New England and, and New York State. And those programs that are providing business assistance to food and farm businesses across the region can realize that just like a, a, an advisory board or a webinar that helps people to understand how to create an advisory board can be a resource when they're talking to a business and trying to meet that business where it is, I think that scenario planning and um, strategic foresight can be as well. Particularly calling out accelerators and how accelerators kind of create a cohort of businesses that then a tool like this can be plugged into that community and get um, kind of up the game of the individual businesses and the and the the cohort as a, as a as a culture. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, and I I, I do think that um, there's kind of an emphasis in in beginning farmer programming on kind of the basics, if I would call it, of business basics, right? And I I get that because it's meeting people where they're at, but you don't if for folks who've been farming for a couple of years that that kind of programming isn't actually what isn't addressing the business challenges that they have anymore, right? And this, um, holy cow, how are we gonna pivot to survive stuff that people have been going through this year? Um, so I, you're right, I think that this methodology is definitely way more relevant, I think, than people think. And we were a little apprehensive because we had some pretty early stage businesses in our group and I gotta say, it it worked, you know, it, it worked as well for them as it did for the people who've been in business for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it was great to see that. It no was question. great to see that. Yeah, because we were apprehensive about that. So, so yeah. Well, thank you, Eric, for joining us today. It's been great to chat as always. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.